All right, so we are in week eight of a series that we are calling Seize the Moment, and it's this idea that we need to learn how to, how to interact with each other quickly, how, how, to, how to take the opportunity to share the gospel, how to take the opportunity to encourage one another, how to take the opportunity to pray uh, for one another. And so we are looking at the book of Ephesians. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And uh, the last uh, couple of weeks, we have been uh, kind of navigating through what, what I'm calling the doctrine of unity for the church. So Paul has talked a lot about the fact that there are, there's really just two groups of people. God's not concerned with all the different races and, and nationalities. What God's concerned with is, are you saved? Are you not saved, right? And so the language that they use here to describe all of the unsaved, right, that they're given over to false gods, false ideologies, sinful lifestyles. He calls them Gentiles, and then the, the true Israel, right? And that is the group of people who have come to know Jesus as king. Those are the two groups of people that exist, and those are the two groups that, uh, that God is concerned with. And, and so he takes this moment at the beginning of chapter 4, and he, and he kind of he kind of huddles everybody together and he says, look, we are to be inside of the church unified, right? We're to have each other's backs, that we are to do ministry together. And he uses this language of one body, right? That we are not to be divided in a bunch of different bodies, but instead be in this place of unity. And he continues this thought, this thought of unity in a way of, uh, that's going to get a little bit tense, okay? And Paul does that. that. Like, that's Paul's thing. Like, his bread and butter is rocking the boat. I mean, if Paul does anything really well, it is saying the things that make you kind of uncomfortable. And, and that's where we're going to end up here in the second half of chapter four. So I have uh, named today's message a little cryptically, HG's Lock and Key. All right, hopefully that'll make sense in just a moment, but I'm calling it HG's Lock and Key. Uh, and there's something about the, the being in unity uh, that, that presents, puts us in a place where we are in a position of not just protection, but covering, right? So uh, what is the opposite of unity, right? So if I'm going to talk about unity, and, and this is something that is so relevant, right? I mean, this is so relevant. If I'm going to talk about unity right? I can talk about all the positive attributes, but I cannot ignore the negative attributes, the warning signs, right? It's like, like, like driving your car, right? It's important to understand that when the check engine light comes on, your car is trying to tell you something other than go faster, right? I should know. This morning on the way here, my check engine light came on, and I went into something called reserve power mode, all right? Now, you might think to yourself, like, you know, like, what is that? Yeah, I have no clue. Still, I did 20 miles an hour until I got to victory, and then it decided top speed, five miles an hour. And so I literally came into the parking lot at five miles per hour with a man in a Jaguar screaming and either cussing or having a Holy Ghost party in his Jaguar. I'm just telling you, one of the two was happening. Ezra and I were both like, what is he doing? He wasn't happy or he was thrilled, one or the other. We made it here, though, and I'm telling you, my, my, I have to understand some stuff like that's not normal. 
And so when we talk about like the life of the church, we, we get all weird when we start talking about sin, right? It's like, oh man, do we really have to talk about that? Like we might hurt somebody's feelings, right? Right? Do you ever feel that as a Christian? It's like, ooh, man, I really want to say something. But if I do, they're just going to think I'm preachy, I'm judgy, I'm whatever. And, and, and I don't have a solution for you, right? Because I deal with those exact same emotions. Like, I can't tell you how many times um, before I banished Facebook out of my life that I would type something into the little prompt there as a response to somebody and be like, oh, I need to say something, right? And then I would delete it. And then I'd retype it a different way. And then I would delete it. And then finally I would just give up and be like, hmm, and hit send, right? Like maybe they'll read into the fact that there's something weird going on here. But have we noticed that people who are potentially in a place of rebellion or sin, they don't so much struggle with sharing their opinion, but it's this place of like, as a Christian, it's like, what do I say? Now, again, here's what Paul's not going to do. Paul is not going to tell you like, hey, you need to make it your, your mission in life to be out there throwing up check engine signals on everybody's life. But watch what he does here. I think it's pretty powerful, right? So we're coming out of a thought on unity. We hit verse 17. Now this, now, I've said some things about unity in the church. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So this is what he says. He says, we've been talking about these positive attributes. Now I'm going to tell you we need to be real and accept the fact that the Gentiles, people that do not know the Lord, they walk differently. And he gets right into some really strong language, and he says, in the futility of their minds. So we're going to camp out here for just a moment and break some of this down, because we, I, 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 I think sometimes we have a, a language barrier when it comes to Scripture, because, and I use this, this idea all the time, man, the, the, the definition of words is changing so fast, right? It's at light speed right now in the world around us. And if we're taking modern definitions sometimes, we, the, the, the translations that we're reading can't get updated fast enough to make corrections, right? Now, if there's a God and there's an enemy, which I'm telling you there is a God and there is an enemy, this is one of the great tools the enemy has is to redefine the terms so that what's on the paper means what he wants it to mean. So we have to be careful. We have to slow down and make sure what is it that was being communicated here. And sometimes that requires more than one word to be able to do that. What does testify mean, right? So he says, now this I say and I testify, right? And I think that for me, it's like, is this redundancy, right? Because it's a testimony, not the thing where I just get up and say something. Uh, And so I was looking this up and in the Greek here, to testify is to personally witness and then protest, right? So it's not just simply saying something. It's not just like, well, I know this thing because I read it, or I know this thing because it was told to me, or I know this thing because of, you know, some book that's out there. No, no, no. I experienced it. I am a firsthand witness, and I am here now in protest, right? Am I protesting to the thing that happened? Am I protesting to the thing that's come in opposition? I don't know, but my testimony is something that is of protest to somebody, something. I think it's fascinating when we look at the book of Revelation, and it says that in those last days, right, the enemy is defeated by the blood of the Lamb, 
and the word of their testimony. What is that testimony? That is that firsthand account, that witness that I saw it, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm here in protest because it's not okay. And the blood of the Lamb's already been shed. What's lacking is the saints testifying, the, st- the saints saying, no, 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 that's not what happened. I was there. Or let me tell you what did happen. I was there, and I'm here in protest. And so he says that I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. And I, I touched on this a moment ago, right, that there are two, two groups of people, two identities as far as Paul is concerned, as far far as God is concerned. This is what Paul says. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. Now, let's just pause and just acknowledge here that Paul believes that people who are not saved will be reading this. Just like I have to understand when I come in and preach on a Sunday morning that we have people who are saved and people who are not saved that are hearing this. And so my, my goal is to be faithful to the text without coming across to somebody who is not saved as if I'm just pointing them out, right? That's not my, that's not my intention. My intention is to hopefully just speak the, the word of truth and that the Holy Spirit will do a work inside of you to give you an opportunity to respond. So he believes that there are going to be people who are reading this who are not saved, right? Okay. Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, right? And so every one of us knows what it means to be a Gentile. That's the reference point here, that every one of us have been the sinner, And some of us may actively be right now separated from God. We haven't accepted that calling. We have not received what God has for us. Some of us have, but every one of us gets what it means to be a sinner. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I want to point out that he says that you were alienated. Okay, because he's going to use this language again. He's going to bring it full circle in just a moment. What were you uh, alienated from? You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, those that are the believers, the chosen of God, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So when he talks about Gentiles, he is talking about people who have no hope. They may believe they have hope. That, right? They may write down like, oh, here's where my hope is, but they don't really have hope because they are alienated from God, the only true one that can redeem. Now, back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says here that, that, that you walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So what is, a, what is the mind here? It is the intellect. It is the place of ideas right? And so this is what he says. He says, those that are separated from God, those that have not encountered God, that the ideas, the ideologies that they bring, right, they, there is a futility that is built up inside of it. And he's telling this group, right, when he's talking about unity, think about it for a moment. Like, we're just, I'm, this is one solid thought, not a bunch of disconnected thoughts. One solid thought. He's like, be in unity. Be one body. Do not live like 
the Gentiles who practice this futility in their minds, in the way that they think. Now, this is really powerful for me because I've been doing a lot of research on postmodern thought, right? And postmodern thought requires truth to be subject to the individual's interpretation. So, postmodern thought, which is this, this philosophy that is uh, kind of like what, what they're saying that the world operates in right now, is this idea that my truth might not be your truth, and that your truth might be different from my truth. And this is a futility of the mind, because, because when we come to the saving knowledge of Christ, we understand that truth is truth. And we can understand why truth would want to be subjugated or fault because truth brings freedom. And the enemy, right, is not about freedom. The enemy is about captivity. God is about freedom. And so there would always be a battle on truth. Okay, so the mind is against the truths of God, uh, and, and, and this is a depraved mind right? It's not just simply a mind that is, you know, really interested in whatever the next movie is. There's a depravity that kind of feeds into these ideologies. So clearly Paul believes that we are capable of identifying the difference between these ideas and his, that we have the capacity to look at an idea and go, hold on, that's not of God or that is of God. And, and, and kind of the, 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 the thing I want us to get here, and I'm, I'm really, like, I feel like I'm kind of struggling getting this across, and I don't know how to make it really clear, is that God believes you have the capacity to do it, and you have, there's an expectation to do it. And maybe it's just me, but I feel like I am disinvited from looking at the world and calling sin, sin. I feel like that if I see sin and I identify it as sin, that then all of a sudden somebody's going to say, well, I got a pastor over here on the side who says that that's not sin, right? And I read this book by this person who says that that's not sin. And therefore, I know the Bible's calling it sin, but there's a lot of people who are saying the Bible might not be authoritative. And, I, and the rabbit hole goes down my mind into my heart, and it's like, I don't really know what to say in this moment. So maybe that's just me. Maybe you don't ever feel like you don't know what to say. But Paul is saying that God believes that you have the capacity to identify what is right and what is wrong. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, look at this, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. I told you this was going to get dark, this was going to get heavy. Paul's like shifting tones right here. He's been all like butterflies and rainbows and like, hey, I love you guys, you're awesome and happy. But let's talk for just a moment about this way of living that is alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, not willing to receive. Now, this hardness of heart is, is an image of uh, another type of imagery that we see in the Old Testament is like stiff-necked, right? So, the, the hardening of the heart, the, the idea of being stiff-necked, it's this positioning where you feel like, I have it figured out. So nobody's going to tell me. This is that unteachable person, 
right? This is that unteachable mindset. And, and this is the thing for me, like, as your, as your pastor, as the pastor here at City Church, I, do, I want to be teachable. Like, I want God to be able to bring people into my life that will help me be a better person. I struggle when God brings people into my life who have it all figured out. And, and, and when I'm one-on-one with them, they're trying, to, they're trying to tell me why I'm wrong because they have it all figured out. That's a struggle for me. And Paul says that we, we need not be like that person, right? Because there is a darkening, right? What does this mean to be darkened? It is to be obscure or to be blind, right? To be blind. And the truth is, is you cannot rationalize with a pers- what, a, what a person cannot grasp. Like, there are just, there are concepts, like, right, I'm watching a movie with the kids, and, and, and my youngest, and when, they're the, when they are younger, they'll say, I, I don't understand what's going on. And I'll try to explain it to them, and you can just see the wheels are spinning. They're trying, they just don't get it, right? There's just concepts and ideas that you don't get until you've lived a little bit of life, until you've had some experience until you have figured a few things out. It's this idea of trying to lay a a calculus problem in front of somebody that has not passed any basic math, right? If if they don't have the ability to add and subtract and do long division, they're not going to be able to conquer the calculus problem. And so Paul's using this language. He says they're, they're dark and like, there's, a, there's an inability for them to comprehend. And again, they are alienated, right? Just like we said earlier in Ephesians 2, he said that like, when you are not walking in harmony with God, you are alienated from hope. You are alienated from his promises. You are alienated from all that he has for you. You are alienated from what here? The life of God. Now, this phrase, life of God, here denotes the spiritual force given to the human spirit by spiritual contact with God, resulting in the action and exercise of holiness. What does that mean? That means that in order for me to be in the life of God, to, 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 have, to be in proximity of it, means that my spirit has come in contact with His spirit. And this is what brings us down kind of that Uh, eternal rabbit hole of can somebody be saved and lose their salvation? Because there's these moments of imagery in Scripture that are like, man, when your spirit touches his spirit, when you have a Holy Ghost encounter, right, there's a forever change that takes place. You enter into this, this this position of you can't tell me. Somebody says, oh, God doesn't heal that way, right? My response is, you can't tell me God doesn't heal that way. Why? Because I've encountered God's healing. I have seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it in my own life. It's not, secondhand, not a secondhand story for me. My testimony is this. I witnessed it, and my protest is, you can't tell me God can't do it. And there's something about coming in contact with the Spirit of God that allows you to be in the life of God. And why do they end up alienated? Because of the ignorance that is in them. 
because of the ignorance that is in them. And like I'm reading this, I'm meditating on this, and here's what I'm thinking about at this point right now. Man, if somebody is in the room today and they don't even know that they believe in Jesus, like this is super hard, right? It's like, oh, well, man, I'm not a Christian and you're calling me ignorant, right? And this is what what, I, what, I, what I'm really ch- hope to communicate is that God's grace is for the lost. God's wisdom is for the believer. And so for the believer, the wisdom is this. You don't need to operate like the lost. And the lost don't have an expectation on them to operate like the believer. And so we use this language all the time, right? When, when we're talking with our kids, it's like, well, why, why would you expect somebody that doesn't acknowledge God to act like somebody that acknowledges God? Why would you expect a lost person to act saved? You don't, right? right? And, and, and people are on different varying parts of this journey. I'll get to it in a moment. Paul does too, right? So, like, people are at different places in this process, right? Like, I can have an encounter with God, but as far as understanding what it looks like to walk in holiness, I may not have all of that yet. So, I may do some things that are wrong, and that's why I need something like this from Paul going, stop acting like that. Don't do that anymore. What does I'm sorry mean, right? Right? Does I'm sorry mean, man, I'm going to do better to not get caught next time? Like, do, you, do you understand as a parent, like, there's a whole work inside of that, right? Like, to get your kids to move from the place of I'm sorry, meaning I got caught, to I understand, I comprehend that what I did was wrong, and I will not do it again. Like, there's a maturing process that, that we walk through, right? And so how many times do we go to our kids going, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Do you ever feel like a broken record as a parent, right? Do you ever feel like a broken, does that ever leave somebody? Please tell me it does, right? Like, like that they grow up and you, you feel like, I finally am not saying don't do that. I have no idea how my mom and dad feel. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says, look, I told you not to act like this, but I'm going to go even further, right? I'm going to go right to the thing that seems to always rear its head, and that is sexual immorality, right? I'm, I'm telling you, people say, man, the Bible talks a lot about sex. You are right. The Bible talks a lot about sex. And the expectation that God has on this incredible gift that he has given. So what does it mean here? Sensuality and the practice of every kind of uh, greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Before we answer that, what does callous mean? Well, callous, this is a compound word, right? So a compound thought for us here in the Greek, meaning a bunch of things. Separated, devoid, disconnected, disengaged. One of the things that, uh, that, they do, that the Greek language can do, and we see inside of the New Testament oftentimes, is you can take a series of words and just smash them together, 
and nobody, you don't have like a, 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 a you know, a, a literature professor behind you going, oh, that, that word doesn't exist, right? No, that word now exists. I added six words together, made one word, and everybody who's reading it's going, oh, I know exactly what they're talking about, right? Uh, for us, we would never get away with that, right? The only people that get to make new words are like 15-year-olds on TikTok. They get to make new words, and nobody says, hey, that's not a word, right? But anybody else that tries to make up a new word, it's just shut down, right? Right? Like, like, like just so you understand, like, I'm what they call Generation X, right? I am far removed from what is called the baby boomers. And yet now, 15-year-olds call anybody older than them boomer. Have you, have you seen this, right? And it's like there's no arguing with it because as soon as you go like, no, 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 that's not how the generations work, they go, you just don't get it. Yeah. You just don't understand, right? You're just disconnected from reality. And I'm thinking to myself like, I'm disconnected. From, what reality are you in, right? But it's okay. I digress. There's a compound word here. And this word callous is it's a beautiful word. It's the best we could come up with in our translation. Separated, devoid, disconnected, disengaged, right? This is it. They lack the capacity to feel the Spirit of God. Why would we come to that conclusion? Well, because in the previous verse, he talks about the life of God being this picture of you have not connected with the Spirit of God. And when you connect with the Spirit of God, all of a sudden you go, yeah, I know exactly what it looks like to connect with the Spirit of God. Most people have a salvation experience where they will say, man, I was in a service and something was happening. I was a train wreck and I knew I had to, I had to run to the altar. I had to turn my life over to Jesus. What did I do? I touched the Spirit of God. I touched the Spirit of God, and God did something inside of me. And when I am calloused, I cannot feel that. I cannot experience that. And he says that I am callous and have given themselves up, that they are callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Now, if you look back in some other translations, you won't see the word sensu- sensuality there. And it's a, it's a, this is actually another one of those that's kind of complicated to translate in the Greek, uh, apparently. Uh, they used to use this word wanton right? And this is probably not a word that you're super familiar with, but the, the definitions are, uh, for wanton are, are pretty interesting, right? If you use it as an adjective, it's sexually unrestrained or having many casual sexual relationships. If you use it as a noun, it is a sexually unrestrained woman. Now, immediately people go, why has it got to be a woman? This is actually pretty, pretty fascinating here, uh, this is not a, a um, derogatory thing towards a woman the way Paul is using it. Actually, Paul holds women in really high esteem. And if you go back into, the, into his letter to the church in Rome, he has this, uh, this uh, part of chapter 1 where he just begins to lay out this idea that women innately understand virtue and morality on a level that men do not. And what he says is this. He says that when you see a woman who has fallen into whatever type of depraved sexual lifestyle, you know that the men are so far gone, it might be beyond hope. Like if you see, when, you, you, when, he, when he references a female operating this way, he says, what I'm telling you is the men, they're a disaster. They are a train wreck. Because women innately, there's something about their, their, their motherly nature that's, that is the restrainer in the relationship. Now, 
I, I would have to argue that I have seen that to be true, not just in my relationship. I feel like my wife and I have a really healthy relationship, but in all the marriage counseling I've done over all the years, like that is a normal conversation that the woman is like, I love him so much, he's got to do better. And a lot of times it's around sexual things. He can do better. He can be better, right? So, so this is not a slam in this regard. Look at this too as a verb. Behave in a sexually unrestrained way. So you might look at sensuality and just go, oh, well, what Paul's saying is, you know, they, they were listening to WAP riding down the road, right? That's not what they're talking about here. They're not saying that it was some song that was seductive or the person was wearing something that was a little immodest. And that's, again, that, that's the unfairness of how we translate it out here. What's he, what he is communicating here is that there is a sexual nature in the depravity of the mind that has no limits. There are no boundaries. And every generation, right, creates this like circular reasoning that, well, this is where the boundary should be and it'll never get to this place right? And then we watch entire civilizations fall based on those ideas. And then a new civilization comes around, and what do they do? The exact same thing. They keep pushing this envelope of sexuality, and if you'll watch those things in history, and you watch the Roman Empire, right, as it is crumbling and falling apart, they are moving further and further down the road of what is sexually okay to uh, pedophilia and uh, 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 incest and, and things that I'm, I'm telling you right now, you'd be going, oh, no, 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 no. Those are the lines that you never cross, right? But those are the lines that somebody is far enough down the depravity scale to be making an argument to see happen. It was crazy, right? I'm, I'm reading the news constantly. It's one of the things I want to know what's happening in the world around us. I want to know because Scripture tells us to look right, for the signs, because the seasons will change to know what God is up to. And I'm reading an article where there is a lawsuit right now in the state of New York between a mother and a son trying to overturn a law that says they cannot get married. And you have people from all over the world chiming in on it, going, if it's love, let them. And so, He's painting a picture of a type of sexual mindset and identity that just keeps going further. In fact, he says, let me just go a step further to help you with this. He says that there is a greed to practice every kind of impurity. He says you can identify, you can identify, there's an easy identifier when we're talking about these Gentiles, these people that are disconnected from God, they don't know the hope of eternity, they don't know the life of God, they're not walking in the Spirit of God. There is a way to identify them, and there, it, is, it is built around sexuality. And there is a greed. I, I can't get enough. I want to be able to live the way I want to live, so I'm not going to judge anybody else living the way that they want to live. So there are no boundaries, right? This idea of, well, nobody's getting hurt. And then when you begin to go, no, 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 somebody's getting hurt, all you have to do is go and find a doctor 
who also wants to live the way that they want to live, and they will come out and, as an academic, go, well, I'm researching this, and I see nobody's actually getting hurt. And this is the, this is the disconnect that Paul is talking about. So he's talking to the church. He's talking to people. He's saying, walk in unity and do not live like they do. What is greediness? This is covetousness, desire for advantage. I want more and more. What? Impurity, uncleanness, physically or morally. Things that do not honor God. It is endless and abounding. If I just try this, if I just do that, I'll find satisfaction. I'll find hope. Physically by action, morally by virtue. And do I sacrifice my behavior? Do I sacrifice my virtue? No. No, God says there's a better way to live. There's a more fulfilling way, and there is an ultimately more rewarding way to live your life. So he goes on here in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. So he's like, hey, I'm telling you, don't live this way. Why? Because it's not how you learned Christ. You did not get introduced to Jesus with the idea that you just go out and do whatever you want to do sexually. Now, interestingly enough, one of the uh, uh, arguments that gets made uh, today uh, by a lot of what uh, we would call uh, progressive Christianity is this idea that the reason that Paul uses Christ so much is because he doesn't see Jesus as Christ. And you go, what? That's, that's crazy. This is, this is a, a legitimate argument. A legitimate argument. In fact, uh, there are only, I think, four or five times where Paul uses the, the name Jesus. The rest of the time, he uses the, the word Christ as a name. Uh, unfortunately for the argument, it falls flat here because he actually uses Christ and Jesus. This is one of those times, right? So on, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. So what, what does the word Christ mean in the Greek? It is Messiah, anointed one, and, uh, and, and an epithet of Jesus, right? So an epithet, in case you did not know, is a quality characteristic of the attributed. So who is he attributing? He's attributing Jesus. So the big idea here, okay, Followers of Christ do not look like deniers of Christ. We look differently. So if you're a follower of Christ, you look differently. If you're a denier of Christ, you look differently. And if you're a denier of Christ, one of the things that you notice is that followers of Christ look different. There's something about them. I remember the first time I ever experienced this, I worked in a Sears, right? Man. I feel like, 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 I feel like an old man right now talking about Sears. Uh, I was in high school. Some of you don't even know what a Sears is. That's so bad. But I worked in a Sears, and computers were uh, pretty new at the time. The story's just going downhill really fast. We had the Pentium II processor. So if you're a computer guy, you know what I'm talking about. I think we had something like, I don't know, 32 kilobytes of RAM. Um, it, was, it was pretty amazing, and we, we, I was in this uh, department selling computers, and it was a commission-based department, and when I first got there, my numbers were really bad. 
right? Because people would come in and they would say, I want a computer that can do this, this, and this. And I would tell them, doesn't exist yet. Or do you have $100,000, right? But my counterpart would be like, oh, absolutely. This one right here, it does everything you want it to do. And this $500 accessory will make it do it even faster, right? People would be walking out of the building with a computer, a washing machine, and a microwave. You know what I'm saying? And, and what do you think happens? Those get returned, right? So I didn't sell as many as the other people, but I didn't have the returns that those people had either. And uh, one day, this lady comes in, and she's, uh, it's like her fourth time in, and the person that she's been dealing with is not there. And, I mean, I'm 16 years old, but I'm, I love the Lord, right? I mean, that's all I can tell you. As I was 16 years old, I'd had my testimony. I'd experienced God. I love the Lord. And she's asking me questions, and I'm like, I'm sorry. It just doesn't do that, you know? Uh, you know, had I known one day what they could do, you know, I just said it just doesn't exist. It just doesn't do that. And she looked over at me, and she said, you're a Christian, aren't you? True story. I mean, it's the first time I ever experienced that. And I was like, yes, ma'am. How do you know? And she was like, I don't know. There's just something that's radically different about you and some of the people that I've been talking to, right? And I was just at a computer sales thing at a store that's completely bankrupt and out of business today. But I'm telling you, it, it, it's in the most subtle things that people will go, there's something different about you, right? Doctor tells me that uh, my son Zoe is emphatically 100% going to die. No chance that he lives. On a Friday, they want to they just say, let's just call it. And I said, well, can we wait till Monday? That Sunday night, I'm in the, the, the waiting room at the Ronald McDonald house, staying up all night praying and saying, God, I need a miracle right now. And this guy walks by and says, what are you doing? Right? One o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, in my little sarcastic Birmingham, Alabama self thought in my mind, what does it look like I'm doing? Right? Have you never seen a man pray before? But I didn't say that. I said, I'm praying, um, just asking God to do something that seems impossible right now. And he said, hey, man, I, I was standing there when the doctor was talking to you. Our baby's the one in the unit next. And I heard the doctor say, there's no hope. You're wasting your time. And I said, it doesn't make any sense to me to claim that there is a God. And then when things get difficult, give up and walk away. I'm going to pray and see what God does. And he walked away, true story. I started praying again, seeking God, asking God to do something. He walks back in with tears in his eyes, and he says, I want what you have. Can I tell you, I never shared the gospel with this guy, but I led him to the Lord right there in the room that night. And he said, listen, I'm not a good man. I'm not a good husband. You know, what do I do? And I said, well, you're going to need to make things right with your wife first and foremost because you're married. And I said, you know, I don't know what that's going to look like. It's going to take time. The next morning, we're sitting in the lobby. We're waiting on the doctor to call. That man and his wife come out of their room at the Ronald McDonald house, both of them crying. He walks up to me and says, I couldn't wait. I woke her up. I repented before her. She accepted the Lord, and we stayed up all night praying for your son. But I, I just got to tell you, the followers of Christ just... They do not look like deniers of Christ. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, because I'm going to tell you what, if you spend enough time around me, you're going to go, amen to that. Pastor Jim is not perfect. But followers of Christ do not look like deniers of Christ. Paul's trying to get this point across, 
right? Like, like if we're going to be the church and be in unity and have any impact and authority, right, if we're going to do anything for the kingdom of heaven, we cannot look like the club down the street, the place where people who are far from God run to. And unfortunately, for our culture, the point of contact that Paul is bringing out is sex. And it's evidently something that is worth pausing and considering. Verse 21, he comes in here and he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So this word here, assuming, uh, that, that we've put in, it's really rhetorical, right? It's, it's uh, he, he's, he's, he knows, right? You're reading this because I have been there teaching. Like you're a church that I helped establish, so I know the Christ that was preached to you. So assuming that you were paying attention, right? A little bit of sarcasm in his tone here. So assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, who would have taught them? He did. So he says, assuming that you were, oh, that's right, you were. Because the same Jesus that I'm talking about here, the same Jesus that you're serving, the same Jesus that you are faithfully serving. Because remember, that's how this letter begins, right? You guys are doing an incredible thing, right? Assuming that you were listening, then you're also going to know these things. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And this is that imagery that we have when we uh, participate in baptism. It's this imagery that, that the old man is being put off and the new man is being received. There is something new that is taking place. The former manner of life, that is the way that I used to do things, right? Because it is corrupt, filled with deceitful desires. I'm putting that off. Followers of Christ do not look like deniers of Christ. Followers of Christ do not look like they did before Christ. So not only do we not look like people that want nothing to do with Jesus, we also don't look like we used to. Like, like something's different about us. There's a before and after. It's part of that testimony. Let me tell you what happened. I firsthand experienced transformation in my life. God did something, and I was transformed. So it's not a comparison as much as a declaration. He's not sitting here going like, well, let's look at what it used to be like, and well, it looks like now we're going to create a little flow chart and see how much change you've had. No, 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 no. It's just a declaration. I just don't think like I used to think. I just don't talk like I used to talk. I just don't do the things that I used to do. That's the beauty of coming to the saving knowledge of Christ. And if the Holy Spirit's doing anything in this room right now, in the life of anybody that is struggling with this, it is I hope that what you are hearing, what you are receiving is this, that it is perfectly okay to have been in sin. The call is not to make you feel condemned and guilty today in the sense that, well, I'm a worthless person and I'll forever walk around worthless. It is to simply help you understand that God wants to connect with you and He wants to make you His own. 
so that tomorrow you would say, I just don't do those things anymore. Why? Because my spirit has touched his spirit, and the life of God is something I'm not willing to give up. And so, yeah, I went to church living like this. I hung around believers acting like this, or I ran from God acting like this. But on this day, on this day, I said, all right, enough's enough. I cannot please two masters. I cannot make the world happy and God happy. And I believe that God knows best. And if I, if I have any hope of seeing the world around me come to know Jesus and be saved, it is not going to be from com- complacency and compliance. It is going to be from reckless abandonment turned towards Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who knows what is best. Verse 22, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. What did he talk about? The depravity of the mind of the person that's far from God. What happens when you come to know Jesus? Come on. It's good. There's a renewal that's taking place, and renewed is not made new, but made young here. Okay? So it's not a new mind. And think about, man, Paul is, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wordsmith, right? Like the Greek Getting it moved over for us is difficult sometimes. What he is saying right here, check this out, is that the old man is gone and you got a young mind. It has been restored. It has been renewed. I push off that old way of doing things and it's not like my mind is just physically removed and a new one is put in. No, 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 no. It is made young. So it's the old man and the young mind, and watch what he does here, the contrast, verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here, new is not renewed. So when it comes to the mind, there's a renewal. It's made young, but when it comes to what everyone else in the world is seeing, it's something that looks brand new. Like you're not the same person, right? Now, why does that, why does that distinction need to be made, right? Because it is a completely normal thing for us to come to the saving knowledge of Christ, our lives look different, and us remember all of the things we did before. Now, as a, as a believer, I have moments of failure in my life. And if, if, if I were not saved and I identified them as failures, they would consume me. But because I have a renewed mind, my mind is able to go, no, 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 no. It used to be like that, but it's not like that anymore. But to the world around me, something brand new has taken place. And so this is not a person you are until the old is put off. So this newness is not something that you just get to go and buy and walk around with. Like, hey, I'm going to pull this out sometimes. You know, I'm, it's Sunday morning church. I'm going to pull it out, right? It's just never going to work, right? And you don't put it on over the old because what will it do? It will begin, the old will begin to eat through. Like, there's just a shedding. It's just like, man, I just, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm transformed. Jesus has wrecked me. God is my king, and I know some people are not going to get it, but I'm okay with that because I believe that what they see in me will be more valuable than me standing there going, it's okay, I love you anyway. No, 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 no. 
at the end of the day, the best thing for them is to know Jesus. Because really, what a lot of people just need is a renewed mind. So I'm just a sinner is a nice platitude, but not a godly declaration. Man, I tell you, I hear people say this all the time, well, I'm just a sinner. And the worst for me, the worst for me is when a pastor says it, right? I, I, I'll, I just, the one, one that just resounds in my mind is a pastor that had had multiple affairs, right? And the church found out, and his response was, I'm just a sinner. Why would you expect any different from me, right? No, no. If I, if I make a mistake, I repent. I push it off. And my declaration is not I'm just a sinner. My declaration is that was sin. That did not honor God. I need restoration in my life. I need renewal in my life. I can't go back to that. So he's talking to Christians in the church who are completely capable of living just like the world outside. And he says, you, got, you can't do that. You can't live like them. You've got to be different, right? And what? You have the new self that is in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is equity. Now, I had to look this up in context because this is one of those words that's kind of flying through culture today. And in in the translation here, it is the quality of being fair and impartial. Righteousness as it is intended or as Paul is bringing it forward here in the Greek, it means that I am fair and impartial. It is not, I am saying that God is the way, and I'm sorry, my my goal is not to make you feel like dirt or feel worthless, and I know you're having all these things you're fighting with inside, like how do I overcome, and why is it like this, and did God make me this way, and is God, listen, all all I can tell you is this, God saved me. And I just have to believe that if you encounter the Spirit of God, He'll do a work in you. And it'll be a different work in you than it was in me. Because I'm going to tell you, the temptations that got me in life are not the temptations that you're telling me that you're wrestling with. But I believe that the same God that did a new work in me will do a new work in you. That's what righteousness looks like. And what is holiness? Holiness is godliness. That is actually walking it out the way that we believe God would. Now, the dangerous part about holiness is this, is that we can go, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do that. So God must not do that. And yet God's sitting there going, no, 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 this is how it is. And instead of allowing ourselves to change, we can make God be the one that is subjected to our holiness. And that's why he sandwiched that right there at the beginning with true righteousness and holiness because there are counterfeits that are out there. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He's pulling it right back into unity, right? They're sandwiched on both sides now. He's like, who was I talking to? I wasn't talking to, you know, the person that's not in church. I'm talking to the person who's actually in church. I'm telling you today, right, that we are to be brothers and sisters. We are to be unified, right? So successful unity requires truth. We cannot lie. We cannot sit there and speak things that just simply are not true. And in order for there to be truth, there has to be a basis for truth. And that's the Word of God, right? The Word of God becomes the basis for what is 
fact. Now, it's important. The next few verses that we're going to cover here are not Proverbs. This was not a proverb that he just pulled out like, hey, I've been in the middle of bringing some pretty heavy stuff, so now let me switch over to a fortune cookie for you. No, 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 no. Continuous thought. Continuous thought. So the truth we must speak among each other is that being separated from God is a breeding ground for depravity and impurity. We need to be in a place where we are connected with the Father. And the truth that we must speak uh, among each other is that being as believers, we don't walk like that or justify that anymore. We just don't do it. We don't walk around going, yeah, hey, it's going to be okay, and God will sort it out for you. No, 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 God's calling you to repentance. The thing that God wants to do is have an encounter with you and transform you. I, I can't tell you what all He's going to do, but it's, it's going to be transformative. Again, this is not a proverb, and watch what he does here. This is the part of, the, the, of this whole teaching that just, like, was messing with my mind. Because this next verse, guys, this next verse is taught so out of context, so much my whole life, and I've never even caught it. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is taught, right? When we talk about anger, oh, God's okay with anger, right? Remember in Ephesians 4, 26, it says, you know, be angry and do not sin. So you can be angry about something, just don't sin. And, and what? Do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? So if you're having a fight with your wife, you need to get it fixed before you fall asleep, right? I mean, it's good advice. I'm not saying that it's not good advice, but Paul is not talking about that right here. I want to point a couple of really compelling thoughts out here. First of all, this word angry and anger, right? They're, they're not the same word, right? Not not just in like the way that we write them in the English, but they're actually a separated thoughts. First of all, this idea of being angry is to be irritated or provoked. But the second anger, okay, is to be at a point of wrath or indignation. Now, I think that if, if you ever get upset, you know that there is a difference between being at a place of being irritated in a place of wrath, right? Indignation. So there's two, two thoughts that are happening here, right? And, and Paul's response, and this is what's so, so crazy, is he says, he says, look, do not, do not live with this lifestyle of sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of, of impurity, right? He says, don't live like this. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. So he has these two thoughts, right? And then he comes flying into this, and he says, be angry. Sin should upset you. It should upset you. And it should not upset you to a place of sin, He's not calling you to be the little closet keyboard warrior who's online telling everybody what's wrong with them. He's saying that sin should not be something that you are okay with. And he says, and if it brings you to a place of wrath, if, you, if your anger flies from a 3 to a 10, right, you need to get this resolved quickly, but it is okay 
that sensuality and sexual immorality frustrates you. One fluid thought. It's okay for it to, to upset you. It's okay for you to look at it and go, this does not honor God. Why? Because God did a, a new work in me. And you're talking about God this way? God transformed me. If you had known who I was before, and you're going to talk about God this way? No. No. He says, and you have to get this under control or you give opportunity to the devil. So this is a truth about the emotion of anger in general, right? Is that it's okay for something to upset me. I need to walk it off. I need to get it under control. What I don't need to do is to become a tyrant screaming and yelling on one side of it or somebody who just goes, well, whatever. Just let them do what they want to do. No, 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 no. I need to get it under control and I need to take a stand. And if I do not get it under control, now I've created an opportunity for the devil in my life. So there's just this huge like tightrope that's taking place. Like this is sin. It's not okay. It needs to upset you. But you cannot let that then turn you into something else entirely. There's just so many facets to what it looks like to be a humble Christian who's following the Lord and is not living like the world, but is also not condoning what the world is doing and not going, well, it'll be okay. What's the big deal? No, it's not okay. But it's, I love them anyway. And when I don't get that balancing act just right, I give the devil opportunity in my life. So anger is an emotion that internally means enough is enough. Enough is enough. And when we tolerate it, we give opportunity to the devil. So enough is enough, but I cannot stay in this place. Now I have to come back to a place of being calm and rational. It's not okay, but I'm going to navigate it. And can I tell you, like, if you have children in your life, if you have people that you, if you have a dog, you have a pet, right? What good does it do to stay angry, screaming, and yelling when they've chewed up your favorite set of headphones, Brett? He didn't stay upset. He laughed about it. Just saying. But if you do that, right, and you stay upset, what happens? Right? That dog then all of a sudden walks around with its tail tucked between its legs, cowering every time that you raise your voice, every time ready for the, the, the meanness to come. No, 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 no. No, 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 that's, that's not going to do anything, right? But also just throwing something else out for the dog to chew up is not going to do anything either. And same thing with my kids, right? I don't want my kids walking around going, oh, I'm just afraid I'm going to set dad off. Because when I set him off, man, he doesn't know how to turn it off. No, 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 no. But also on the same hand, I want my kids to know, right? There is a point where enough is enough. And I have to be able to come to that decision and bring it back in. Paul says, it's okay, get upset. Now bring it back in. Now bring it back in. And he uses this analogy. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let them, him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So again, this is not a proverb. What is a thief? A thief, very simple, is somebody who is stealing or filching, right? So I had to look that up to 
filch is to pilfer or steal. So this one's really simple. A thief is somebody who steals. No rocket science behind this, right? And, 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 and Paul says, like, like, if you have a thief among you, give them something honest to do with their hands, right? So that they can have gain to use to help somebody else. So, so here, here's the, the truth. Does a social contract prevent stealing? No. We can come up with all the social contracts we want to come up with and all the little ideas and be like, hey, listen, you know, we'll let you steal as long as you don't steal more than $1,000, right? Is that going to stop somebody from going over $1,000? No, right? A really smart thief is just going to do that multiple times a day. No, no, no. What stops a thief is civil authority. A civil authority stops a thief, right? And, and, and this is a biblical concept, right? So there are consequences for stealing. And, and we get this, like, innately. Like, nobody, like, in their right mind is going, like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. So Paul just, he, he comes in, he says, it's okay, get upset. Now, listen to what I'm saying. Like, if you have a thief, right, that's among you, you, the church, the church, engage in life with them and give their life meaning. No, no other social organization is going to be able to bring transformation. Why? Because no other organization manages virtue and morality. The church is the voice of virtue and morality because God is the one that presents and manages it. And he says, you go and you do this, right? Because, because, because you'll make a difference. So moral virtue redeems the thief. So when somebody is, is living in sin, we'll use the thief as an example here, you do need to be engaged in life with them. You need to go and love them, and you need to be the one that is putting your resources and your effort into helping their lives be better. Right? Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Because as he begins to have abundance in his life and he begins to more probably adeptly identify a thief than we do, he'll go, this is somebody who's in need. I'm going to meet the need before they take the need. Somebody says, well, they were hungry, so they took food, all right? I want to be able to identify that they're hungry before they go and take the food, and I want to feed them, right? Civil authority do its job. The church, the intervention that we have is to feed the hungry, not to arrest the hungry. It's a, it's a tightrope, guys, I'm telling you. Like, you jump on either side of the conversation, you miss it all. So Paul knows that this is something we can all agree to. Help the thief be a better person. Don't corrupt them further, right? Don't corrupt them further. Now watch what he does here in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So when you see somebody that's in sin, be engaged in their life, and then... Be careful what you're saying. So, look at this. You have to address sin, but do so in a way that does not corrupt. So you don't walk, you don't start a, uh, a ministry to the strip club 
and walk in there calling everybody in there some sexual slur, right? You don't just go in there condemning them, screaming and calling them worthless, right? What do you do? You're going to have to learn how to, the things you say can corrupt even when they're true is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying even when it's, even when it's a fact, right, it may corrupt them because it may push them away. So you're going to have to learn this balancing act of not only not looking like the world outside, but when you're engaging with the world, even though sin angers you, and it should anger you, be angry, that's perfectly fine, but reel it back in and figure out how to speak in such a way that it is good for building up. You may feel like you're working at this place because it's the only way you can make enough money to feed your child. Well, let me tell you, we've got some people who own businesses in the church, and we're going to work to help you find a new way of provision. You're working the street corner over here because you feel like there's no other way to pay the bills. We believe that you are worth more than that, and your family deserves better than that, and we want to help. And you know, the truth is, there are going to be people who say, no, I don't want your help. I'm, 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 I'm strong, independent, and I choose this. Paul says in Romans that, that is a, that's a dangerous signal in a society when there is not this, like, repentant. There's not this thing, even from the sinner, to go, yeah, you're right, this isn't the best, right? So you're going to encounter that. Your response is not to scream and call them worthless. Your response is to figure out how to use language for the occasion that uplifts, right? Because the picture of corrupting is that it becomes unwholesome and depraved in itself. So if you're not careful, what do you do? You end up looking just like the world. You just have a different vice. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So, speak truth and be aware of those around you. And then he wraps up these thoughts, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve? To distress or to make sad. You probably thought that the only way that you can grieve the Holy Spirit is by saying GD, right? Because that's what we're told when we're kids. Like, that's the unforgivable sin. Not a biblical thing. The grieving of the Holy Spirit here happens when we don't do the work as Christians. It grieves. It makes him sad. Genesis 6, God looked down on the world, and, and the world is filled with sin. And Peter and Jude say that it was a, a sin of sexual depravity compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he looks down, and it says it grieved him to his heart, and he wished that he had not made man. But he revealed himself and one man named Noah said, yes, I, I, I respond to you, God. And God said, I count that as righteousness. And Noah, his wife, his three sons and their daughters were, were rescued from a flood that came and wiped out the earth. Listen, we can grieve the Holy Spirit when we just do this thing of going, yeah, I got it figured out. Me and God, it's good. He doesn't care about the sin. That grieves him. That makes him sad. And it says, by whom you were sealed. And this is, my, this is my, my thought here, right? There's a locksmith in town. And when we become believers, 
This picture of being sealed is to be locked up, and we don't see, we, we don't see this language super often, but we see it again in Revelation, and there is this language, and you can have, we can all have different kind of interpretations eschatologically. Are we premillennial, postmillennial? Is the rapture happening tomorrow? Is it after I've had dessert? Whatever it is that you want to believe inside of that. What he says here in Revelation chapter 4 is that there was a scroll with seven seals and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, begins to unlock them one by one. And these things follow as the Holy Spirit is doing its work and unlocking them. And that seal, that same language is what's on you. It is a protection that is put on you that there's only one who has the key to. It's the very Spirit of God, and it's that interaction that we've had that puts that seal on us. Paul says, man, you have been sealed, so you can do better. You got this. You don't have to live like that and talk like that. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And he just, now he just kind of just drops down a list of things that, that Christians can do, right? It's just like, just don't be like this. Don't sit around and talk like this and act like this. Let's be in unity. So anger is an emotion that creates a resolve. Once that resolve is established, put it away. Don't keep dwelling on it. And he ends the thought here. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, let's stand to our feet. We do not have to be okay with sin. We do not have to tolerate sin in our lives, but we have to figure out how to approach sin, engage those that are in sin while being tenderhearted. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be the first to tell you, that is not easy, right? Some of us, we have a nature to just be angry. And some of us have a nature to just be tenderhearted, right? So, you know, somebody who's angry, you don't get away with anything. Somebody who's tenderhearted, right, they get away with everything. And then, it, it, like in our, in our home, right, I'm tenderhearted about some things, and mom's tenderhearted about some things, and kids do this thing. They figure out who to ask which question, right? Dad, can I have dessert? I don't care. Go get dessert, right? They know that if they go and ask mom, she's going to go, how much sugar have you had today? What did you have for breakfast? Did you have cereal? Which cereal did you have? Did you have a milkshake later? Did you have an ice cream bar? How many, how many desserts have you had today? They don't want to go through that, right? That's what I'm thinking of myself, like, right? Like, like, I know my body chemistry at this point in life, I can't have ice cream every day. I wish I could. They can, right? It's not good logic, right? But it's the way that I think in the moment. And so my kids know they come and ask dad certain things. They come and ask mom certain things, right? It'll be 90 degrees outside and they want to go on a bike ride. They know if they come and ask dad, I'm going to be like, yeah, like 10 o'clock tonight when it's cooled down, we'll go for a ride on the bike. But it's all sweaty right now, right? But they know if they go ask mom, mom's going to go, yes, that's so, such a great idea. And then she's making me go out there, right? And it's 100 degrees and humidity like a swimming pool. But we figured those things out. But, but Paul says, look, man, you guys are doing a great job, right? You're Christians. You love Jesus. Many of you are showing up. Man, I'm proud of you. Look, we can't look like them. We can't tolerate their behavior. And we've got to figure this thing out. We've got to start doing the hard work. We've got to stop playing both sides of it. Get upset at sin, but then figure out how to build the people up around you. 
Come on, that's the church I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a church that does not feel like we just have to give in because everyone else is doing something, but I also want to be a part of a church that's not out there with a bullhorn in one hand and a sign in the other telling everyone they're dying and going to hell. Amen. Come on, Pastor Reuben, you got it back there. Amen. I want to pray for you guys, and I'm going to let you go, okay? Jesus, we love you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for your faithfulness and consistency in our lives. Everything that you do for us every day, the way that you move, the way that you interact with us, and the levels of excellence you're calling us to. Father, help us to grow and be more like you. Help us to be quick to call sin, sin, and just as quick to build up and love those that are in sin. Father, if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, they have not had that encounter with you, and they haven't responded to that encounter, I pray that today would be that day, that right now, that if you're tugging at their heart, they would make a decision that, you know what, I'm ready to just cross the line. I'm ready to, I'm ready to encounter the life of God. Lord, we love you and we praise you in your mighty name. Amen.